Hi, I'm Linda McGlasson, Managing Editor of Bank Info Security and CU Info Security. Today's Information Security Media Group podcast is with Jacob Yeager, Senior Banking Analyst at Sealint, a global financial services industry research and consulting firm. He's the primary author of the company's annual global IT spending report, as well as the Banking CIO Survey and Model Bank Report. Welcome, Jacob. Thank you very much, Linda. I'll start the questions with the most recent Goldman Sachs ex-employee who's accused of taking proprietary trading codes. Why could this have happened? Well, I think there are really multiple reasons uh, why we could have encountered uh, this type of breach. A fraud case where we have an employee who's accused of uh, stealing the code. As far as why it could have happened, I mean, there are numerous reasons. Um, It could come down to policies and procedures. I think it's very important uh, for rules to be set. It's another thing for them to be followed. And financial institutions need to protect themselves for when rules are not followed. And with that, they basically need to make sure that they have the right software in place, uh, software that will basically be able to monitor uh, the activities of employees on internal systems, whether they try to copy information to other sources, move information access multiple records that they perhaps wouldn't typically do. And of course, this all has to be defined by the bank, the institution, uh, based on business rules that they set up in advance to try to prevent this uh, in, a, in a proactive manner instead of being uh, reactive. I think uh, the other issue is that there's a, the risks of trying to steal a trading model are very high. Uh, my colleague, David Eastope, who also who covers the capital markets angle at Selling, um, you know, has also been quoted as saying the potential reward is very high um, because if you look at investment banks, they've made higher and higher profits from automated trading. And uh, that's clearly a driver here. You know, you can see the dollar figures attached to, you know, these types of transactions, uh, dealing proprietary code um, that could basically uh, offer some sort of competitive advantage to another firm or, or to an individual. Um, you know, can certainly be be quite attractive to a to a would-be fraudster um, or someone in dire financial straits. What are the lessons other institutions can learn from this case? I think there's a number of lessons uh, that can be learned. I think the first and foremost is to make sure uh, you have an enterprise-wide fraud management solution uh, in place, a solution that would basically prevent fraud. Um, and will react in real time to activities of employees in terms of what they're doing. So what would be a typical example? Um, If I'm, let's say, a call center representative, and I tend to access 20 customer records on average during a typical day, and all of a sudden one day I try to access 40 or 50 or 60, the system should raise a red flag and perhaps even lock me out of accessing additional records. Um, because I've exceeded what would be my typical norm. Um, in other words, that would, you know, that's not to say that the employee is necessarily doing something fraudulent, but it falls outside of a typical behavioral pattern. Then um, that needs to be tracked by the organization to prevent a disaster. It could be that by accessing all of these records, the, the employee would either try to sell social security numbers or customer records or information. Um, you know, that they obviously... Uh, should be treating as private and confidential. So 
So the lesson really is to make sure that you have the right software in place to monitor uh, and track potentially fraudulent behavior in real time. In your latest report, Internal Fraud, Big Brother Needs New Glasses, why do you say that insiders can devastate a bank? Um, I think there, there are multiple reasons. Um, insiders, if you think about the way attacks, you know, there's really two types of attacks. Attacks that come from the inside and attacks that come from the outside. And we tend to hear a lot, particularly in the media, about attacks coming from the outside, whether it's you know, the hackers who are sitting somewhere in Eastern Europe and just banging away trying to break into some, some sort of system. Um, and in, that, in those cases, there are numerous knocks on the door, but few successful entries. The success rate is quite low. Um, on the other end, when you're talking about employees, you know, they're already on the inside. And when they try to knock on the door, in many cases, they're already inside the door. Um, and their success rate at actually committing fraud as such is quite high. Now, the potential for devastation is huge because if you think about, you know, a financial institution, you know, their most valuable asset is their customers, their information, and, of course, their assets. And if any of those is put at risk, the financial institution, well, it can tarnish its reputation, can obviously be dragged through the mud in the media, and of course, most importantly, have customers lose trust and confidence um, you know, in their financial institution, which can obviously lead to attrition, defection, um, and obviously loss of revenues and profits. So how shocking are those numbers, and how serious is the insider threat? Um, so by those numbers, I'm assuming you're referring to the 60% that I, you know, that I mentioned earlier, where uh, insider fraud accounts for approximately 60% of bank fraud cases where a data breach or theft front has occurred. Um, the numbers are very shocking, and it's a very serious threat. Um, I, I don't think, you know, when you talk to chief information security officers at financial institutions, they won't be shocked by this number. They're well aware of it. Um, I think it's really folks... Uh, in the public, and perhaps even in other industries, it would look at this number and say, wow, that's a shocking figure. But it is a very serious threat, and I do think that banks are aware of it, financial institutions are aware of it, and they are taking actions in terms of trying to implement some of the solutions that I mentioned earlier. When internal fraud hits, Jacob, does it extend beyond the bank? Absolutely. Um, and I think that's why one of the reasons this is often referred to as insider fraud, uh, not just internal fraud, because an insider is technically an employee, or an insider meaning someone who has a relationship to them. It could be the spouse of an employee, a friend of the employee. You know, in many cases uh, where there are incidents of fraud that are being committed, you may find that accounts have been opened by the, by the employee's girlfriend or boyfriend who has a different last name. Um, and it's important to create some sort of linkage between the activity taking place between the employee's account and the spouse's account. And this is just an example that I'm giving. There are many others. Um, in order to understand and track the activity of what money is moving between accounts and how that, you know, where that flow is actually going. Um, because often, quite often, there is someone on the outside of the bank who is in collaboration with the employee. Um, so, yes, it certainly can extend beyond the bank. I heard you mention earlier 
how important do you think policies and procedures are when it comes to thwarting this threat? Um, they're critical, but again, they obviously they have to be followed. Um, I think, and you know, to, to use this case as an example, uh, you know, many of the articles and information I've read about it have said that the that this employee had copied this information to a personal computer because he was working on it at home. And if you think about policies and procedures, I think that is a great example of actually probably the violation of what I would consider to be a cardinal sin. Uh, when you work for a financial institution. Um, if you're dealing with any information that is sensitive, or even not sensitive, the rule is uh, work information and work data stays on work computer. Uh, you know, and there have been cases in the past, uh, you know, I recall one where information, you know, there was a, a woman who had worked at a bank who had transferred some files that contained social security numbers to her computer and a personal computer, and one of her children who used a, a P2P file-sharing site to download music um, had, you know, had software for that installed on the same computer, and someone actually broke into that machine and stole that bank employee's uh, files that she had copied over and got hold of the social security numbers of, of bank clients. And I think that's a perfect example of policies and procedures. Uh, it's important for work to stay at work. You can take it home, but take it home on a work computer. The minute it leaves the bank or financial institution, um, things can get uh, can get hairy. And that's because there's policies for use, but there's also um, there's also you know technology tools in place, whether it's antivirus or uh, or monitoring software or what have you that's uh, that's in place. And from a compliance requirement to make sure that uh, what you do. Uh, at, at work is work-related and stays within the boundaries of, of, of the business. Jacob, what are your thoughts on the use and display of social security numbers? There's a lot of, uh, you know, when you're talking about any database, often people are are identified by their social security number. And, you know, there's been some talk about legislation about removing that, and making that, you know, not even an option. Although I, I don't think that's realistic. Um, I do think that there is a case um, at any company that does take into account uh, social security numbers of of a social security number being displayed on a need-to-know basis. So to give an example, if I am a junior call center employee and I have a customer who calls in and I ask them for the last few digits of their social security number, perhaps I only see those last few digits because I'm a, I'm a call center employee. I can't actually see the entire social security number. And in many cases, uh, in fact, in most cases, I would say that, you know, everyone from junior call center reps to whoever uh, has access to these systems can see uh, the social security, the full social security numbers of, of customers. And I don't think there's any place for that in today's world, given that, given that um, there is a potential for fraud and there is a market for customer records and identities. Um, so I think, uh, you know, banks have to revisit the use of social security numbers. Obviously, they're not going to abolish them from their systems. That, that would be, that would be uh, quite absurd at this point, given how far along they are with the customer record. It's a question of just who is able to see them and why. Another question that I had for you, uh, what about personal digital storage, yes or no? So that's an interesting question. And personal digital storage can refer to multiple things. It could be a USB key, memory key that 
you know, that employees tag around. Uh, it could be a mobile phone, which contains memory. You know, my, you know, my iPhone has uh, 16 gigs on it, and technically it's nothing more than flash memory that I can copy, copy things to. Uh, personal digital storage could also be a digital camera, which takes, takes pictures. Um, you know, and I've heard all kinds of things from banks saying, you know, we want to ban any form of personal digital storage from the workplace. I don't think that's realistic. I think people are going to have their mobile phones that have cameras storage and their iPods and iPhones and what have you. You can't quite get rid of those, particularly as technology evolves and as use of mobile devices evolves. However, back to the whole idea of policies and procedures, it's important to set an example and rules, policies, in terms of what is acceptable use at the workplace for these devices. Can you listen to your iPod? Sure. Can you start snapping pictures of customer records that are displayed on the screen? Obviously not. So, it's, again, it comes back to policies and procedures. Jacob, how would you suggest financial institutions go about creating a sound and timely notification process? So, this would relate to a data breach. Um, so, when, when a breach does happen, I'd say a lot of financial institutions, if you look at past cases, are guilty of waiting too long to tell affected customers. In many cases, it's, it's months. And uh, that's certainly a problematic uh, issue because if a customer is affected by a data breach, their information may have been compromised. Um, they need to know because obviously their identity could be stolen. Folks could start taking out loans under their name and applying for credit cards and what have you. And uh, this has to be done in a timely manner. And I don't think the majority of financial institutions are well prepared for that. Either that or at the beginning, when a breach does happen, they're just simply not sure of the extent of the breach. At times, an investigation takes place, and you know, certain, certain details of it are only discovered later on, including other customers who are affected. So the first thing is to be able to speed up this uh, discovery process of, of, you know, of how serious and severe the breach is. Um, the second is it comes to really to a PR and communications perspective of being able to have um, a marketing team, a PR team, um, create a plan, almost a disaster recovery plan. That's that you know, as part of a disaster recovery plan, a, a PR attack, which says, should a breach occur, how are we going to handle it? What is my target time to contact customers? How am I going to contact them? What channels am I going to use? Uh, what compensation am I going to offer them based on the severity of the breach? How am I going to communicate that to them? Uh, will I offer them identity theft protection services? For how long? Um, and all these things need to be laid out in advance, not kind of, okay, I'm scrabbling to figure this out because we just had a breach. Uh, so notification is critical. Jacob, what about awareness training for employees? Is it important? Absolutely. I think any... You know, it's when you talk about security, one of the most critical components is training. And, you know, we talked about all these different policies and procedures. They're useless if employees aren't, aren't aware of them, aren't reminded of them, or don't know about them. So it's important to have training and ongoing training and refresher training <laughs> to remind them about it. And this would apply to new employees who enter the firm and... Uh, you know, or perhaps not familiar with the policies and procedures that are in place. And it would also apply to existing employees who, you know, who need to be reminded. Uh, and the other issue is, as I mentioned earlier, technology evolves and as new devices come out, new trends occur with in, in the industry and for consumers. I think it's important to update the policies and procedures as well as the training to reflect them and communicate these 
in an efficient manner to employees. You know, and training can take many forms. It could be on site, in person. It can also be web based. Uh, there are many ways of approaching that, and uh, they're all critical. Do you see technology playing a role in stopping internal fraud? Absolutely. I think technology plays a critical role in preventing uh, internal fra internal fraud and, and catching it in a proactive manner. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's really all about having this uh, enterprise-wide uh, fraud management solution um, that will look across channels, look at different types of employee activities, that's customized based on defined business rules, that works in real time, that has a dashboard um, that uh, that you know the administrator can easily access and view reporting on, and that has an alerting system that can alert uh, those within the bank who need to know about a potential breach or risk um, as quickly as possible. So absolutely, technology plays a critical requirement. Jacob, thank you so much for your excellent insights today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Until later, I'm Linda McGlasson for Information Security Media Group.